I recently published a blog post about how to manage your calendar rather than the other way around. In this post, I referenced what I see in a lot of nonprofit leaders, the compulsion to do all the things. Definitely some control issues going on among you folks. And I encouraged readers to be really honest, and I want to do exactly the same here. Have you ever told someone on your team or your board chair that you have 723 emails in your inbox? Or that you were so jammed with meetings that had been fill-in-the-blank hours since last you ate, where fill-in-the-blank equals some crazy number of hours? Headline news, my friends, this is not five-star leadership. Headline news, you are building a burnout culture. Now, my guest today calls it something else, martyritis. Now, I'll leave you in suspense and give her the opportunity to describe it. She's way more entertaining about how leaders get themselves all tied up in knots getting it all done. And by the way, one last piece of headline news. You can't get it all done. We are going to untangle this. Why do we take such pleasure in being so weighed down? Because if we can cure this underlying illness, we can all be on a path to modeling the leadership we want and the leadership we need our team to follow. A kind of leadership that values self-care, wellness, and saying no. We call that prioritizing. I don't know if that's a word you're familiar with, but it is a word you should actually really start to actually embrace. And once we, <laughs> once we figure that out, we can start to rethink how we lead and live. My guest has five steps you can take that will really help. Now, I have done two episodes this year on the power of meditation, so I just want to promise something. None of my guests' five steps involve focusing on the breath. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Kashana Palmer is an international speaker, trainer, and coach with over 20 years of boots-on-the-ground experience in fundraising, marketing, and talent management. She's wicked strategic and has been the driving force behind many wildly successful fundraising initiatives, raising in excess of 100 million bucks. But today, her work is about so much more than that. Today, her firm works with clients and organizations to develop and implement sustainable, inclusive leadership practices that help achieve a healthy and equitable workplace and overall lifestyle. Don't you want what she's having? Her bio ends with an exclamation point. Quote, when an organization wants to grow, find, and retain people on their team and raise money, she is the fairy godmother they have on speed dial. Exclamation point. You know, this is the second time I've had a fairy godmother on my podcast. Oh, wait. That was you. You're back. Welcome, Kashana Palmer. I'm excited to see you. That was the best. I'm like, ah, uh, is that me? That's me. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> so fairy godmother, also known as Kashana Palmer, help listeners. Give me, we do a lot of storytelling work in my nonprofit leadership lab. Give me the elevator pitch about the firm and the work, the kind of work you do, maybe a, even sort of an ideal gig so people understand what your firm is about. Absolutely. Well, we've recently gone through a rebrand. And so Kashana & Co. is now Management because we are putting a fresh take on management and leadership. And what we believe is that we are working with the whole person, that how you show up at work is how you show up at home, is how you show up in your social environments. And so rather than pigeonhole leaders into one peg hole or another, we've decided that we're going to take an equity-focused, a wellness-centered approach to management and leadership practice. And so the kind of folks who typically will knock on our doors are at a point of inflection, either in their own career journey or in their organization's trajectory. And they say, oh my gosh, we have read all of the blogs because Joe and your blogs are awesome. We have in all the courses. We have done everything the Leadership Lab told us to do. And now what? Now what? And so we say, hello, pick up the phone so you can call us so we can get you into the so what, now what, or the now what, what? And so that is the work we do through trainings, through retreats and offsites, through board development, through executive advisory. And every now and again, Either me or one of my other consultants will roll up our sleeves and get in with you and do fundraising strategy, okay? You, you, listen, I have to really like you to do that one. So many leadership consultants, right, and I would put myself in this category too, we focus on strategies for nonprofit leaders to take good care of themselves. We try so hard to remind them that they're setting a tone in their organization that puts everyone on the fast pass to burnout. Okay. And in this advocacy work that we do, we make a fundamental assumption that leaders actually want to change, that they right. want their behavior to be different. And I think you have a bit of a different point of view about this, and you call it martyritis. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about what led you to this observation and yeah. why, why nonprofit leaders are drawn to martyritis. So here's the thing. So I would count myself among the folks who love to work. And I know some people won't say that out loud, but I have great joy and safety. Just like when I was in school, I had great joy and safety in my books. And so I love the work. I, I get energy from it. So martyritis is like the cousin of the workaholic. The one who comes by and who always drops juice on the couch. And they're like, oh, look, oh, I'm so sorry. But they don't want to clean it up. And what I mean by that is they want to be seen for the mess. So when in martyritis, you're like, look at me. I work so hard. I have bags. If I wasn't here, I don't know what the organization would do. I have to stay late because who else is going to do it? No one else knows how to run the spreadsheet but me. No one else knows how to fill in the blank, whatever it is. And the truth is, everything is on TikTok. And so what martyritis does is it goes... Look at me while I work so hard for this mission I care so much about. And the reason that lots of us who are in the nonprofit space slip slide into martyritis, because, you know, we started out like really wanting to do the work. And Joan, you hear that all the time. I'm just here for the mission. I just want to do the work. OK, do the work is a mudslide into overwhelm, overwork. But with martyritis, you want people to see it. 
It's what I would call the humble brag. Oh, you know, I'm just over here trying to do the work. You know, just I'm over here just trying to do what I can do. But you really want people to see the little, the suffering, as my mother would say. <laughs> you want people to see suffering just a little bit, right? While you toil away. And because many of us who come into nonprofit work come with a servant's heart, many, many of us start that way. Time, pressure, exhaustion, lack of funding, staffing, your environment, narcissism, the pandemic, racism. The world starts to press in on our desire to be a helper. So what pops out, like when your shirt's too tight, is the need to be seen that you're stressed and you're pressed. So I get all that. Are you suggesting, and depending on your answer, some listeners may drop off. Oh my gosh. Are you suggesting that there's a certain amount of ego in that for people? Is like, I want to be seen as indispensable. That if I only had 50 emails in my inbox, maybe I'm not as important, but if I tell people I have 723, I got to be a big deal. Well, the folks who feel like they have, just say, ouch, if you feel like I'm talking to you folks, when you listen, mm, it's being in your car, in the shower, wherever you listen to it, just say, ouch, because the truth is, yes, the ego is designed to protect us, right? And so it's sort of like our first line of defense against all of the elements, And so if you are the type of person who has not found your identity in something else, and I was among them, I started working at 14. I went straight through college, grad school, kept working. The very first time I got fired, I literally thought the world was going to come to an end. Yeah, I bet. Because my identity was in how people saw me at work. Oh, Kashana, she could have had the big job in investment banking, but she left it all behind to go work for nonprofits, the poor, unfortunate souls. You see that narrative? And you don't even have to say that narrative out loud, Joan. People say it for you. Oh, you work for nonprofit? Oh, wow. Yes. You oh, that I call it the bless your heart. Oh, the bless your heart, people. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, you know, I don't wow. know if they're disgusted, clutching their pearls, or really happy for you. But you internalize that, oh, wow. And so you want to be you want to be seen significant. Many of us want significance. Let's be honest. But, you know, it's so interesting because, and when I was an executive director, I would totally have been saying ouch to you on this podcast, for sure. And I would say that it may be that I have some control. <laughs> I may be have some control issues, Kashana. But, Uh-oh. like, it's not about ego, really. It's about my passion for the work. And not wanting to rest until my clients are served or the bill gets passed or, right? So are those things connected? And and neither of us, we'd be practicing without licenses here to be psychologists. (laughs) But like, is it some combo platter of ego and control and a desire to, you know, just a fierce commitment to the work that takes over you? And I would say, yes, they're connected because just like you said, the, the desire to control is to protect in some ways. You want to protect the environment, whether it's process or outcome or strategy. Go back to my definition of ego. My basic definition of ego is designed to what? Protect. Right. And so the way that you tumble down the road to martyritis is that eventually you don't know where the controlled because you want things to look and be in a certain way because you understand your vision and ego, your vision, get mixed up. 
I would think that the the person you're describing might be hard to work for. What would you? Yes. Would, yeah. And talk a little bit about that. If if I'm I'm all about control and I'm talking about and I'm overworking and I'm, I've got 723 emails in my inbox, I might not be such a great manager, right? Correct. And let's be clear. Right now, in this very moment, the management team is managing themselves. And thankfully, I have put in enough time with them that they can rock and roll for quite a while without me. But to be clear, not only am I getting emails that I'm not answering, I'm getting Slack messages that I'm not seeing. So then now they have to call me on the phone or text me, and I may or may not call back. Your team should not have to do that much to get their job done. And so when you have taken all those things in, and mine is like life circumstance, but also because I'm trying to get out of the way of being a bottleneck. And that squeeze when you're trying to get out of the way is actually quite, can be quite painful. And so you become a bear to work for. And if you have not built up that social capital with your team so that they come to experience that as episodic and not this is the way it always is, then it's going to be really tough to keep the very people that you are quietly, desperately wanting to keep on your team so that you can relieve the pressure of having to do all of that stuff. Right. It is Daniel Pink that talks about the three key components of job satisfaction. Interestingly enough, one of them is not money. One of them is autonomy. One of them is mastery. And the other one is purpose. And we have purpose oozing out of our veins, right? Mm -hmm. But this notion of autonomy, right? Being able to be, to delegate something to you, Kishana, if I were, if you work for me, and trusting that you will be able to take that project in its entirety, you might mm-hmm. fail forward a bit, and we learn from that, right? But that that gives you autonomy and helps you develop mastery. This need to do it all, which may be control, it may be ego, some combination thereof, you're at serious risk, not only of burning yourself out, but you're at serious risk around retention of your good people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the thing that I run into with leaders time and time again, the frustration around a couple of things. One, why won't they do more work? I just can't get good people. Right. I just can't get people to work. Yeah. Or how about this? You know, I, I, I have a client who's going out on leave and the, the comment was, I don't have any grownups to to manage the place while I'm out. And, you know, the question from me was, are they, did you, so did you hire poorly? Did you not hire grownups because you didn't want grownups or are you not giving them the opportunity to be grownups? And, and either of those are possible answers to that question. And it is really, really important for you to be reflective about the answer to that question. And it is very much the same calculation when it comes to volunteers and perhaps even more so because you say to yourself, well, I I can't, they're just, they're just volunteers. And how do I know that I can give them work and, and hold them accountable if they are not paid? So this is yet another, so this, this is just like a rolling stone just that keeps gathering moss, right? Exactly. And so, and it starts back to, and this is, so this is where the, the ball of yarn gets to be so big. And this is where folks end up 
calling you on the phone, please coach me, getting into the lab, calling me on the phone. Because by the time you go, oh, shoot, I probably should get some help. You are at the bottom of the hill on your back. Right. And you have actually, you have a lot of knots to untangle. That's uh, right. Right. That take time and actually are a detriment to the pursuit of your mission. So, all right. right. So now that we've stopped, now that we're, we've finished yelling at you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, no, I, I think truth telling is actually what this is all about today. I wanted to explore with you something about martyritis before we get to your, you know, it's your five antidotes here. I'm interested in exploring whether leaders, so to to add something on top of this, right? Another piece of the underlying condition of this whether leaders from marginalized communities are more prone to this. Long ago, actually, I think it was in 1993, my friend Andy Tobias wrote a book called The Best Little Boy in the World. And it was a book, the basic premise of this book is if you are going to be marginalized and people are going to think of you as less than or think you shouldn't exist as an openly gay person, You've got to doubly prove your value and your worth. You have to be that star student. I actually see this in colleges and universities. I do some work on the on college campuses, particularly my alma mater. And you, it is amazing to me how often you see LGBT students in positions of leadership. They, yeah. they volunteer all the time to be in charge of things. They're not, you know, just because you're an LGBT person does not make you uniquely leadership suited. <laughs> it has something to do with an Ill- wanting to, uh, to offset yeah. how you might be seen. And so you're going to do the best book report. You're going to have a kick-ass co- cover. And I wonder if you see that in other marginalized communities and whether or not you think that's, I found myself reflecting on whether or not that was actually a piece of sort of martyritis, that this control, this wanting to be, this need to be successful, if you see that with other marginalized communities, when the BIPOC community, differently abled, like, I thought it would be useful to reflect on that for a moment. Absolutely. I think that, you know, one of the things that I was talking to my mom, she's here with me for a few weeks, and we were talking about just like, kind of what we were taught growing up, and my daughter, freshman in college, and so her advice to her is very straightforward. Pay attention to your books, not how to pay attention to your books, not why one should pay attention to your books. Inherent in that is don't mess this up. Right. Don't mess this up. And so you come into the workplace for many of us, having been on a hundred when the speed limit was 60. And so you already start your entry-level role Let's go one step back. Your internship. Let's go one step back. Leadership on campus. Having to keep filling up your basket with more things so that you can be accepted because you need more things depending on how you show up in the world just to get to the starting line. Right. And so, to, right, to prove your worth. Prove your worth. And so that becomes a part of your way of being. So one of the things I learned, I've lost quite a bit of weight over the last year and a half or so. And one of the things that was a revelation to me was that I could not tell the difference between pain and discomfort. One, because I was carrying more than my body really needed to handle at this point in my life. 
Two, because I had been so accustomed to being tightly wound. The, my, the knots in my neck made me look like I had on football padding, but I didn't. That I could not recognize when my body had had enough, which is why until I fell on the ground and couldn't walk for a week, I didn't know that I was not in distress, beyond distress. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're constantly in that fight, flight, or freeze mode all the time, because you don't know if you're going to be fired, you don't know if you're going to be accepted, you don't know if your work is going to be overlooked, you don't know if you're going to lose funding because somebody didn't like the fact you didn't put a comma where a semicolon should go, whatever the it is, that starts to sit in your body. And over time, you just get attuned to and you get conditioned to doing the absolute most and not for the betterment of yourself and not for the betterment of your organization. Yeah. So I, I guess I want to point out that there are factors that lead nonprofit leaders into this space, right? Yeah. And some of them, you know, I started with, you know, ego. I start. we talked about control, but mm -hmm. it goes really deep. It goes really, really deep. And yeah. I, I don't want anyone to mistake this conversation for any kind of blame or shame, right? This is, yeah. a, this is a very common thing that we see with nonprofit leaders who Absolutely. take on too much and believe they have to do all the things. Absolutely. And there are so many different reasons for that. I think that in those folks who have have to prove their worth as a member of a marginalized community, you know, whether it's a black woman who is in a largely white organization or, you know, whatever it might be, there's a reason for this, but owning it, seeing it, naming it, and then trying to actually make some intentional choices about how to offset it okay. is essential for you as a person, essential yes. for the people who work for you, essential for the sustainability of your organization. And ultimately, you know, the people you serve deserve you to be at your best. And best one of the things we have to really do, you have to really think about is best isn't doing the most. Best isn't doing the most. Best isn't and, doing the most. And we don't want folks to have to learn that lesson. Like everybody doesn't have to get their lumps. And one of the things that I find a lot of times, particularly with executive directors who have been in the, the, the business a really long time, folks had to toil for $5.50. Everybody yep. doesn't move into the, the HOV lane of large international NGOs making X amount of dollars. Some folks who work for those organizations are still making pennies on the dollar. Right? Totally. And so there's a, there's a mindset that if we're not careful, we get stuck in that says, well, I did it, so you should do it too. Yeah. And what I want folks to model, because some of us can't get straight to the work-life balance portion of the program, what I want us to start to model first is, well, I did it so that you don't have to do it. Yes. Yes. I, I totally agree. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. So we are talking with Kashana Palmer. 
She is a wicked, strategic, wildly successful fundraiser, strategist, coach, an international speaker and trainer with over 20 years of boots on the ground experience. And she works with clients and organizations to develop and implement sustainable, inclusive leadership practices that help, listen to me, that help achieve a healthy and equitable workplace and overall lifestyle. Yes. She is our fairy godmother today. And I want to now get like tactical and actionable, right? That's correct. I, I want you to talk to everyone and share with them your thoughts about what you call, it's, it call, comes under this category of rethinking. And you have these five steps about rethinking. And I have every confidence that everybody's right on the edge of their seats or the, <laughs> or the edge of their elliptical to hear. That's right. Actually, put your butt right on the center of that elliptical, that's please. It, it. I don't want any accidents. So why don't you take us through the five? And I'd love for folks to hear about them. Absolutely. So my rethink method, literally the word think. So T, thoughtful planning before you make a move. Many of us are so used to that kind of knee jerk, got to put into action, got to go right now, go, 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 that we're not slowing down just enough to be thoughtful. You know, I had a mind this morning um, and I wrote it down, so I might actually still post it today to put on LinkedIn. Tomorrow's Friday in the world. And I would like everybody to cancel their meetings and go sit on your back deck, your porch, Starbucks at the Panera. They're not sponsoring this zone. They need to be sit somewhere. And do some planning and some thinking because we're about to get right into annual giving, end of year. And, and folks, your, your cortisol is going up, your adrenaline is going up. So before you make a move, I want you to be able to be thoughtful. If I can, I have, along with my team and our folks in the nonprofit leadership lab, been going on a sort of a DEI journey. And the phrase that our consultant and coach uses, I think a lot of folks do, is you've got to go slow to go fast. Got to go slow to go fast. And for somebody like me who woke up and just started running out the womb, <laughs> my mother would tell you, she was like, you started walking really early. You were like, I have to go. Okay. This idea of slowing down to go fast is a learned behavior for me. Yeah, me too. I had to unlearn. And still, sometimes I have to just stop and press that reset button, which is why we think it's so, impo- it's so important. So the next one is for age, healthy assessment before you act. Joan, have you ever noticed that we are very quick to bring up all the negative things that are not quite right when folks ask us about our organizations? Don't look here because you know the computers and you know the paper and we don't have and we need and the gaps and we're only working with this. We start with this, to me, a unhealthy assessment of our assets and of our strengths before we get into action mode. So we're already having negative self-talk as executive directors, negative self-talk as our directors of development, as our staff members, as our program teams, before we get into action mode. So we're in correction mode as opposed to innovation mode. And so I want us to try the positive reinforcement. Let's take a healthy assessment. What is working? What is making us light up? What I don't care if it's janky 5,000. What actually is making it through the day every day? You're like, well, you know, the bubblegum sticky tape, but it works. Doesn't mean it's perfect. Let's let's put a, a, a different spin on it. Which brings me to I, you need to have an inclusive approach to setting and reaching goals. I had a friend who sent me an email uh, last week <laughs> and the executive leadership of her organization 
sent out an email with new values for the organization. There had not been a focus group, a conversation, a memo, anything to let folks know this was even a process that the organization was going to go to. They were just handed new values. I'm sorry, what? How do you expect folks to be in the thick of things with you? Because let's face it, things are thick right now if they do not have voice. And so really being able to take a step back and going, what's the result I want to achieve? And I don't care if your organization has five people, two people, all volunteers, 100 people. There's an opportunity to take that pause back to the thoughtful, healthy, inclusive so that you can say, how do we want to reach our goals? And how do you think we should get there? Because the answer is probably in the room, but not if you're in the room by yourself. Not only that, but if you want people to own those values, Mm -hmm. their sense of agency and voice in the creation of them will secure that ownership. Absolutely. So then you've got to be willing to navigate the shifts in culture and values. The thing that I feel like I have to nudge my development professionals, particularly the ones who are like, this is the way we've been raising money since Methuselah had come to be, is things are shifting. Our culture is constantly shifting. People are reassessing their values, what they believe in. Your organizational values are highly influenced in action by your personal values. And so if you're not able to articulate your personal values so that you can make sure that your team knows what your values are so that y'all can decide together, are we sympathetic on this or do we have to like have another conversation? How then are you creating opportunities that you can navigate shift? We become so rigid. If your organization's mission is designed to upend a problem or a challenge that's happening where you live and work, then why are we rigid? Right. And then lastly, and you just said this goes sort of go fast, knowing when to rest before you rush to reset. One of the things that I stand by, I've had clients do it, big organizations, foundations, et cetera, over the last couple of years is close, close, pay the people and go home. That's it. If you were going to make payroll when everybody was butts in seat, you're going to make payroll when they are not. Close, folk are exhausted. And so take the opportunity, if, particularly if you know you're going to have to go into a sprint, rest one week. Three days, bookend a long weekend for the entire team. Don't take it off that PTO because folks need to feel like they are being invested in. And we know that salary isn't the only thing. It's probably not even a top five. I know there were points in my career where it was number one, okay? But it really wasn't the salary as much as it was, can I pay my rent? Will yeah. the light bill be able to be paid? Once we navigate those types of wants and needs, we're still looking up and going, is my organization taking care of me? Yeah. And for many of us, depending on how you came into the workforce, that question was not a question that you even thought to contend with. And so all of this feels new. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we actually, in my firm, there's 14 of us and we actually have another thing that that illustrates, I I think sends a message of trust. We have unlimited pay time off. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And so we don't do a rest week. I mean, and we are for profit, but very mission driven, right? We don't do a rest week. I've seen many, a number of organizations more re- recently doing these rest up weeks. The idea behind unlimited paid time off is is about trust, and yep. it's also just about do what you need to do to take care of yourself. That's it. That's it. And the thing we run into, John, before we move in, is that for many of us, from the time, and particularly if you are 
but we're a part of the U.S. education system because I know different countries approach education differently. Right. Many of us were taught to pass tests and taught to obey rules. Sit down, go to recess at this time, line up, don't speak, now color, then play, right? And so when you get into the workplace, you've had a lot of years of not trusting your own instincts. Yeah. Yep. So this idea of self-management, you've got to know when you take time off, take care of yourself feels foreign for folks because, well, isn't somebody going to tell me when I can? Absolutely. Are you seeing, so do the, do the five things again, just so people have it in there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So rethink y'all. So the word think, get that in your mind, light bulb, thoughtful planning before you move. Kashana said, be thoughtful, healthy assessment before you act. I need us to get the cherries before the Cheetos of action. Okay, y'all? Inclusive approach to setting and reaching goals. If the person who has answered your phones could not name what the goals of the organization are, if your volunteer couldn't tell you one of your three or they stumble over the mission, you have not included them in your approach to saying, here is the market we're pressing toward. Navigating shifts in culture and value. Pay attention, friends. Read the room. Our culture right now globally is shifting. And so this is a great opportunity for your organization to look at how your mission can actually be effective for this day and time. Because your purpose is are you just your values in action. And culture is a set of behaviors. You see where I'm going here? So for those of us who like to move and work and work and move, move and work around this, y'all, okay? And then knowing when to rest before you rush to reset. That's, and if you don't know, I can help you understand that. Your body is telling you when to go sit down. I like that a lot. And, <laughs> um, and I do think that the healthy, the H, I think, made me think about, been been writing a lot about the nonprofit sector coming from a place of scarcity yes. and for obvious reasons, right? But you're yeah. actually saying, don't look at the work that you do from a place of scarcity, what, what isn't going well, what we don't have that we need, but to really actually fuel yourself That's by right. talking and messaging in your organization about the things that are really fine about the work that you do. Um, that's right. So I think that's really important. So are you seeing any signs of hope that leaders are starting to understand these things, that they see what they're doing to themselves, their families, their organizations? Any examples of clients or organizations that you've encountered or worked with that we can hold up for listeners and say, there's some people that are really trying to make change yeah. in their organizations? So one of the organizations that I love, a client of mine, Peer Health Exchange, working on helping to make sure that young people understand their rights around their health, have access to it, can action it, can spread the word, et cetera, or have real agency and autonomy. And what I love, they were one of the first clients I did that took me upon my challenge to close. And a couple of things happened on the other side of that. One, people quit. Guess who quit? Not the high performers. Interesting. With some time to think, folk were like, you know what? This is not for me. The next thing that happened is folk came back and said, huh, well, why are we doing this thing like this over here? I've had some time to sleep. Can we have a planning meeting about this strategy meeting we keep having, but we have not implemented? The third thing that happened is they said, things have got to change. We have had the same people in seat for a long time. And the founder decided, I'm going to step down. Wow. To me, 
that creates an opportunity for the organization to go as designed. Is our mission still relevant? Yep. The answer might be yes. Answer might be like yes with. The answer might be like no, no with. Right. But it gives you an opportunity to pressure test not your worth as an organization or organizational leaders, but the value that you are providing in your community. So that's one. I've had several folks who have moved from chief development officer into executive directors, mainly women and queer folk, who said, enough already. Like, let me throw the shackles off of all of the things that are placed on me that I have been navigating. And I'm damned if I do it. I'm damned if I don't. So let me just do it the way I need to do it. And what I've seen in that is asking for help for real. And not like, you know, I don't want to ask and I know you're busy, but no, here's what we're trying to get done. And here's how I could use your support. And they conversely with their team saying, I hear you. How would I be of best support to you in this moment? Do you need me to listen? Are you looking to bounce ideas off? You know what I mean? Like getting in there and engaging in conversation. You can't think clearly long-term if you're exhausted. The only thing you can do is respond tactically to what's in front of you. And so that's some of the things that I've seen. So an organization and then lots of leaders who I've worked with who have said, when I said I was going to be myself, what I meant was I'm going to figure out who the heck I I actually am. (laughs) (laughs) We are just about out of time. So one piece of advice for the people who are listening about how to, if they saw themselves in... They said to themselves, you all, somebody listening said to themselves, yeah, this martyritis thing kind of resonated for me. What's, what's a choice that person can make, actionable choice that person can make in the short term for themselves, for their team that could be, the, you know, you talk about micro steps a lot. Like what are the micro steps you could take? Is there one you'd leave people with today? Say it out loud to somebody who you influence at work. Say it out loud. Say it out loud. So for the for the team members, let's you're an executive director, you have a team, they know that you're working yourself ragged. They're hoping that you do something different. Say to them, listen, y'all, I am on 100 when I should be on 10. Yeah, right. Help me understand where you think I should focus. Right. Or let's talk to how we can lead together. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. Naming it, bringing it to the light, not taking the shame away from it. Yeah. I love that. I think is a micro step that any of us, any of us who are experiencing this can take. Yeah. I love that a lot. As we close here, Kashana, can you tell folks how they can learn more about you, your firm, your services? So if you want to learn more about coaching and advisory services with me or having me to speak for you at your organization, you can go to KashanaPalmer.com. And if you want to learn more about how my team of consultants and trainers can work with your organization to help you shift, to help you move into your next gear, then you can visit management, so M-A-N-A-G-E-M-I-N-T.co. And we will be happy to get you a fresh take on your management and your leadership in your organization. Fantastic. And just Kishana is spelled K-I-S-H-S-H-A-N-A. So Two SHs if you're looking for when you do the Google. Yes. So and the Google will find me with one, which is funny. But but so but yes, it is two SHs. Thank you to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kishana, it's always a pleasure 
to be oh, joined yeah. by a fairy godmother and a fellow yes. kindred spirit in supporting and advocating for nonprofit leaders to be oh, the okay. best they can be and and redefining and reshaping and reframing what we all mean by best. So okay. thank you. Congratulations on your move to the South. I, I don't see boxes that need to be unpacked, but I bet there are some. And I heard your mother's in town, so maybe she could help yes. with that. She has been. Okay. She's probably standing at the door like. <laughs> good. Well, shout out to your mom and settle in. And thanks for the good work you do. And thanks for sharing your insights with us today. Always. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you, I hope you, you got something, uh, a couple of nuggets there that'll help you take some of those micro steps that Kashana talks about and really to begin to really think about what is, what does it mean to do, be the best you can be? I, I, I think that's a, that's a good one to reflect on as we leave today. So in the meantime, thank you for the work that you do, whether you have 723 emails or two emails in your inbox. Doesn't matter. You're still heroic to us. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful, too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.